I didn't have my mic on. Happy New Year. All right. <laughs> Got to hit that switch. Celeste, Celeste always laughs at my jokes. I like Celeste. She's kind of, I can hear her out there. Celeste is here. Thank you, Celeste. Uh, hey, we are uh, excited. You know, this is our last, uh, our last service for, for 2017. And so I just, I want to encourage you that, you know, just as you've been hearing uh, so many times in the moments of the service already is that uh, there's just, uh, there's a momentum that we believe that God wants to stir into your life for 2018. And I, and I hope that, that just by being here tonight, you're already getting a sense that God wants to do something grand and remarkable in your life. I know for us as a church, for just celebrating for Vanessa and I and our family for being here with City Life over the last 10 years, a, a hallmark verse for us has been Ephesians 3.20, that he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ever ask or imagine. And, and he's done something like that every year that we've been here. And we're, I'm just excited to see what he's going to do that in in 2018. And, uh, and I trust that you're moving into 2018 with a, a sense of faith as well. So I just want to encourage you to just briefly, if uh, we talked about it last week, we've got water baptisms coming up for our anniversary service. The church is celebrating its 12th anniversary uh, at the end of, uh, of January. It's going to be awesome. And we're going to do baptisms as, no, the baptisms are part of the sharing service. Is that right? Ba- sorry. So baptisms are next week. So if you've not yet been water baptized, I just want to encourage you, if, if, if you grew up like I did in the Episcopal Church and you, you didn't experience water baptism by immersion, I'm t- there is, there's an experience that's waiting for you to go all the way under and come all the way out. And, uh, and if you've not done that yet, then find one of us at the end of the service. We want to get you on that list. So all right, one more thing before we get into the message. If you are a bookmark person, I've got some bookmarks down here. These are from the missionaries that we support in Turkey, uh, and they have in Turkish uh, John 1.1. 1, 1. And, uh, and so that's first come, first serve. So you know how we do it at City Life. You can run up and get them at any time during the service you like. You go, Jamal. Come on. There you go. All right. Hey, so we've been talking about certainty. This is how we do it. If you're new to our church, this is how we roll. We reward courage. Come on. There's one left. Who's going to come? There you go. Way to go, Jazz. Way to go. So we've been talking about certainty for the last few weeks. I know in the fasting uh, video, we, we, we said we've been, you know, but we recorded that when we were doing uh, the message on fasting. We've actually been in uh, a series of certain kind of Christmas talking about uh, certainty. And so just for a little bit of recap, if you've not been here for all three weeks, that what certainty is not, certainty is not the enemy of faith. Certainty is not the opposite of faith. Certainty is not the intellectual alternative to faith, and it's certainly not the promise for a doubt-free life. The the definition that we've been working off of together is, is that it's a firm conviction that something is the case. It's the quality of being reliably true, a fact that is definitely true or an event that is definitely going to take place, a person or a thing that can be relied upon. We, we, we've been kind of using the, the, the Christmas narrative as a springboard for us to dive into this concept of certainty, the, uh, an emotional well-being of the human heart. And in Luke 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, it says, many people have set out to write accounts about these events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness report circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write a careful account to you, most honorable Theophilus. So this is Luke, a physician, uh, a contemporary a historian and journalist uh, to the times of Christ, especially uh, the, the, uh, the, all of uh, 
uh, the, the missions work of, of Paul. Uh, Luke was one of the people that traveled with him. So he's writing this letter to his friend Theophilus. And listen to what he says in verse 4. So that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. As a friend of God, I think that there's a, a prophetic sense to his friend. His friend's name is Theophilus, which literally means a friend of God. I don't think that's an accident in the text. As a friend of God, my heart should be filled with certainty. And I refuse to let the uncertainties of life rob me of what is certain. Whether by faith or by fact, my heart will be forever safe and secure from the certainty I find in the promises of God. Each week we've been reading a couple of verses that just remind us that this theme of certainty is all throughout Scripture. The one I picked for us for tonight is out of 2 Corinthians 5, 6 through 10. It says, so we are always confident, right? We're always certain. Even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. That's the famous verse that if you've grown up in the church, we walk by faith and not by sight. The New Living Translation renders it a little bit differently, but that's where that verse comes from. So we, we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then will we be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged, and we will receive whatever we deserve, for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. That last verse is an important part of our discipleship model. You know, we did a series this whole year on discipleship. We were all going to stand before Christ and give an account for our lives. I like this verse in 2 Corinthians because Paul is reminding us that the virtue of faith, when we, when we walk by faith and not by sight, that it gives the human heart the gift of certainty. So we're going to look at Peter tonight. And we're going to see how Peter's journey with certainty, how he was successful at times, and then again while he struggled at times. This comes out of John 6, 52 to 60. It says, then the people began arguing with each other about what he meant. This is referring to Christ. How can this man give us his flesh to eat, right? This is where Jesus says, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's earlier in the chapter in John 6. So all the people are going, what's, you know, this is just a little bit odd. This guy's talking about eating his flesh. He's talking about drinking his, his blood. And, and you know, he, this is early on in Jesus's ministry. He's gaining a lot of popularity because of all the supernatural things that he's doing. And then all of a sudden he just starts to talk about some weird stuff. I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is the true food, and my blood is the true drink. And anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now we know, because right, it's 2,000 years later, and we've had 2,000 years to figure this stuff out, he's talking about his life fulfilling the prophetic message of the Passover feast, which is now, right, communion for us that we do here on the first weekend of every month. Verse 57 says, I live because of the living Father who sent me in the same way anyone who feeds on me will live because of me. I am the true bread that came down from heaven, and anyone who eats this bread will not die as our ancestors did. Now, jumping down to verse 60, it says, many of his disciples says, this is hard to understand. How can we accept it? So all of these people, right, we think of the 12 but Jesus had hundreds of disciples that traveled with him, especially early on in his ministry because he was the popular rabbi to follow. He, he was the rabbi that you wanted to be seen with, right? They didn't have cameras back in, but they had their own version of the paparazzi of people that, that followed around the famous people and they would report back 
to the city of Jerusalem what Jesus was doing, especially to the religious leaders. And on this day in particular, they're coming away and saying, we think he might finally have lost it. We know he can do all of these amazing things, but today he started talking about eating his body and drinking his blood. Right? You can imagine that they're thinking this might be the end of his ministry. 66 to 69, at this point, many of his disciples turned away and deserted him. Just this one message, that's all it took, right? It's not really any different than church today, right? You're here for five years and one thing goes wrong and you're out the door. No, I'm just kidding. You guys are a tough crowd tonight, all right? Right, Jesus turned to the 12 and asked, are you also going to leave? Listen to what Peter says. Lord, to whom else shall we go? For you alone have the words of life. We believe and know you are the Holy One of God. Why are we reading this, this, this story? This is so powerful. Because Peter has no idea what Jesus is talking about in regards to eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Peter's out there like everybody else. He's confused. I mean, he doesn't even have any formal religious training. The fact that he was a fisherman meant that he failed out of rabbinical school, basically at an elementary school age. That was the end of his education. He's been working with his dad ever since. And now here's this religious leader that he believes to be the Messiah. He's been traveling with him probably not just about under a year. And, and all of a sudden he's out there in the crowd and he, you know, he's thinking to himself, is he talking about this, right? It's confusing. It's awkward. Nobody knows what you, what you mean. You, you almost get the sense that Peter wants to pull him aside and say, can you tell maybe a different story? Maybe the one about the seeds and how they go into the ground because people really like that one. He, he knows. He can see that people are starting to leave. Right? He can see that this big crowd and, and the more Jesus talks, the more people are leaving. And at the end, it's just a handful of people left. Right? The crowd's getting smaller instead of bigger. I think it's one of the first times in scripture we actually see this happen to Christ. He started with a much bigger crowd. Usually he starts with a smaller crowd and then he does these amazing things and it gets bigger. This is the first time where it starts big and all of a sudden it gets really small. And I love how Peter says to him, where else shall we go? You alone have the words of life. Peter is saying, I don't understand all this stuff about eating your body and drinking your blood. I'm not certain about any of that. It confuses me and yet, I'm going to have to say it's a little bit troubling, but I'm not going to let the things that are uncertain rob me of the things that are certain. We find here that Peter is discovering this incredible spiritual principle that all of us have to live by. There's times where you and I, we read in this book, even today, even though we've had 2,000 years to figure this stuff out, there's part of it that's still a mystery to us. We've got to learn to do what Peter does. We've got to learn to get to those parts of the Bible and say, you know what, I don't understand what all this is. And yeah, I got to admit, sometimes we can read some things in there and we can say it's a little bit disturbing to me. But I'm not going to let what's uncertain rob me of what I do know to be certain. And that Jesus alone have the words to eternal life. There's no, under, no other name under having given amongst men whereby we must be saved, as it says in the book of Acts. Listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 11 to 12. Paul says here, When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly like puzzling reflections in a mirror, but then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then I will know everything completely just as God knows me completely. 
Three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. What's Paul saying there in 1 Corinthians 13, right? It's famous for the love chapter, but there's so much more in there. This is part of it that often gets overshadowed by the the popular part of the text. Here there's a, a play on words that Paul is giving to us. He's saying, you know how when you were a kid, there were things that you didn't understand? Right, and everybody's reading this letter. It's being read publicly in a church service and it's being shared and copied, right? And it's traveling all over the Roman Empire, all these churches that are being planted and everybody's doing the same thing. Yeah, I remember when I was a kid, all those things that I didn't understand. And Paul's saying, well, that's what your life as a devoted follower of Christ is always gonna be like. See, when you were a kid and there were things that you didn't understand, as you grew up, you began to understand most everything that you needed to understand, but it's not gonna be like that as a devoted follower of Christ because the mysteries of God are so vast and so great that even if you live to be a 100 and devote yourself to the study of all things like Paul had done with his own life, that, that, that Paul was saying of himself that, that there's still things that I don't understand. And we've got to be like children, because kids, they don't care about the things they don't understand. Children have this incredible capacity to not let the things that they're uncertain about rob them of the things that they are certain about. And Paul is saying one day, there isn't gonna be any more uncertainty. When we get to heaven, he's gonna give us all the answers and everything is going to be known just as you were fully known by God. But until we get there, you've got to be comfortable with living with the mystery, right? So some of you who are parents, what are some things that your kids, that, that, that where they are at the age that you know they have no idea how it works? Somebody raise your hand. Come on, I, right, Joanne. Yeah, diabetes, right? They, sometimes you're taking medicine and kids, they don't get it, right? You try to explain it to them and then, right, they just have this blank stare and they go back to doing what they were doing, right? Somebody else, Alvin, money. Come on, can we just pause there? Whew. And you've got teenagers and little ones, so, right? It's you're on both ends. Somebody else? Bills. bills. Yeah, they don't understand bills and budgeting. Come on. Somebody else? Something the kids, they don't understand. Sabre. Why you can't just eat french fries for dinner. Whoa, wait a minute. What do you mean? No, I'm just kidding. What were you going to say, Cam? Cars. Cars. Why you can't eat french fries? Just eat french fries for dinner. Come on, why mommy and daddy want to sleep in past six. It's coming, brother. One day. One day. Chores. Chores. I know. I know. And yours are, you just, they're right here. Just go ahead and tell them right now. Chores, right? Chores. <laughs> Somebody else. Something else. Something else. You know, kids, they just don't understand. Somebody over here, where their hands over here? We know. <laughs> That's great. Tears like, we don't have children. Don't, don't stop here. Somebody else. Priscilla. Death, yeah, kids don't understand. It can be scary for children. That's really good. Somebody else. Calculus. Calculus. And most of the adults in the room as well. I know, I know. Somebody else over here? There you go, come on, right? When she was, when, when her parents invite people over and then they tell her you've got to have your room clean before they get here. They're not gonna come into your room, right? They're not gonna play in your room because they're grown-ups. I'm with you. <laughs> that's so, that's perfect. That's awesome. That's so good. How about directions? Have your kids ever looked at you and said when they were little, 
how do you know how to get to all of these places, right? Did your kids ever ask you that? I know. How, how, and so you, you think about these, these lists, and now for some of you, that hasn't changed. You still don't know how to get to very many places, right? If it wasn't for the, 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 one of the recurring conversations that Vanessa has when we first got married and she moved to Richmond, I would always try to, I would get all these phone calls. This was back in the days of maps, right? No smartphones, and, and we lived in the inner city, and so it was complicated down there in downtown Richmond. Now we get calls from her most days, and she was lost, and she would, she would call, and I would always say the same thing, because that's what husbands do, right? Because we're, we're a little bit dense, and, and, and I would say, if you could just picture yourself as a dot on the map, this would help. And she would always say, I don't have a map in my head like you do. I'm not ever gonna have a map in my head like you do if you could just tell me where I'm supposed to go, right? So we had that conversation for about five years, right? Actually, it's probably 20 some years because we still do it, I still do it. If you just, she's like, don't even, don't even, don't even go there, right? Don't even, don't even do it. There's, there's things that we're not ever gonna figure out, right? It, at some point, you and I have to be comfortable with the reality that there are going to be mysteries. And as long as we can remember that they're not a mystery to God, it can be a mystery to me, and I'm going to be okay. I'm not going to let the things that I'm uncertain about rob me of the things that I can be certain about. For so many people, their spiritual journey is sideways and stalled and has come undone because they're trapped in the place of obsessing about the uncertainties. You and I have to take a lesson from Peter and say, there's going to be some things that I don't get. There's going to be some things that I can't figure out, but I'm not going to let those things stop me from what I do know. For each of the points that we're going to look at tonight, I want to give you a couple of practical steps. Since the last couple of weeks have been really digging into the concept of certainty, we want to leave you with some practical things and some practical steps. So Katie's going to throw up this first one, that when you're stuck in a place of mystery, here are some steps that you can take. These notes are always online, so if you don't want to take notes, you can just download the PDF. It'll be up next week. But the first one of this, you got to find a good church. And for me, a good church starts with spiritually healthy leaders. If you can find a church that has spiritually healthy leaders, most everything else is, is going to be well taken care of. So if you're visiting this church, if you're visiting some other churches, one of the first things that you need to get to know some of the leaders there and make a decision about their life, because if they're healthy, the church is going to be healthy. Look for teaching that's trustworthy. Reading the Bible most days. This is important, right? If, if, you, if you say in 2018, I'm going to read the Bible every day, you're going to set yourself up for failure. What I would say to you is, by the end of 2018, have read the Bible most days. You've got to give yourself some permission that there's going to be days where it's not going to happen to you. If you set up with a goal, I'm going to read it every day, you're going to get halfway through January, and then you're not going to read the Bible for the rest of the year because you're going to be so frustrated with yourself. Read the Bible most days. Strong relationships with mature Christians and learn to live with the mysteries. Now, that's not going to solve everything in your life if you're struggling with some mysteries, <clears throat> but what I'm telling you, it's going to give you a great start. It's going to give you a great start. These steps in your life are going to help you in your journey to deal with mysteries. All right, let's look at the next one is Peter in defiance. Peter in defiance. Now, I'm gonna, it's going to take me a few minutes to build this, but I think it's going to become clear as we get through it. Matthew 16, 13 to 17. So we've looked at Peter and how he was successful in dealing with ministries, uh, mysteries, but let's see how it takes a turn for him. 
Matthew 16, 13 to 17. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon, here's Simon again, right? He's getting it right. Simon said, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being, right? This is part of what a couple of weeks ago we talked about. Sometimes your certainty comes by faith. Sometimes it comes by fact. Sometimes it comes by faith. And this is Jesus affirming in Peter. There's times where God's going to give you revelation. It's not factual information that you could come to know through your own journey and your own human study. There's going to be revelation that's supernatural by faith, and you're going to be certain in it. And so Jesus is affirming Peter here. Many of the other people according to Peter's account, were uncertain about who Christ was. That's why he's going through the list. He, he's saying that, that, that Jesus here, he's, that we, we've moved through the timeline. He's about three years into his ministry. He's coming up onto his crucifixion. And still now, almost three years later, even though Jesus has done all these amazing things, people are still uncertain about who he is. But not Peter. Pete, Peter is certain. He says, I know you're the son of the living God. You are the Messiah. It's a certainty that came by faith, by way of revelation. Certainty has its own vulnerabilities because sometimes because we are certain about things that we should be certain about, that we can find ourselves being overconfident about things that we're wrong about. Peter here finds himself in an interesting predicament. He's, he's, he's beginning to get a handle on this idea of certainty. Things that he's certain about by faith, things that he's certain about by fact, and then all of a sudden, this, this sense of emotional certainty that's building up in his heart begins to morph into something called overconfidence that becomes defiance. Watch how it happens. It's subtle, but here's the turn in the text. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Why is that? Because Jesus wanted to make sure that his popularity didn't get in the way of his destiny because he knew that he was destined to die for the sins of the world. Verse 21, from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders and the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. This is powerful. Listen to this, right? So, so Peter started his conversation with Jesus, and Jesus says, by faith, you're certain about who I am because the Holy Spirit revealed it to you. But now Jesus is also now talking about sometimes certainty comes by way of factual information. Jesus is giving them factual information about what's going to happen to him in his future. So when things go wrong at least appear to go wrong, that they'll be able to remember these conversations and the facts that he gave them so they wouldn't lose their sense of certainty. Does that make sense? Now watch what Peter does here. Peter took him aside because he's got this whole thing, certainty figured out, right? And began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. You are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Now, there should be a disclaimer in the text that says, don't try this at home, right? If you're in an argument with your spouse, I would not recommend that you call them the devil. <laughs> Just, there's some things in the Bible that you're not actually supposed to try, and this is one of them, all right? He turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. What is that about? This is about Peter thinking he's gotten all this certainty stuff figured out. 
He's saying, I've, I've learned how to be certain about all of these various things, some by fact, some by faith, and now he hears something that he does not like, and he's convinced, in fact, he's certain that Jesus has made a mistake. Certainty, if we're not careful, can become overconfidence, and then overconfidence can become defiance. Part of your journey and my journey in this life is that, yes, we've got to learn how to live with the mystery, which we just talked about, but we also have to live with a constant sense of vulnerability to our humanity, that there are going to be times where we are completely certain and we're actually completely wrong. And you and I need people in our lives, just like Peter had Jesus in his life, to bring correction to him, and hopefully in a more loving way than Jesus did. When my certainty does not come from faith or by fact, my humanity is now operating in defiance. Some of you have had these moments in your life. Some of you have had these moments in your marriage. If you're a teenager, some of you have had these with your parents. There's times in our lives where we're absolutely convinced the other person is wrong, and guess what? We're the one. We're the one, and we can't see it. We've got blind spots. The human heart loves certainty, but the human heart has to be careful that we're imperfect, and then sometimes our certainty can mislead us. Let's put the next list up on the screen. Let's look at these. How do we deal with defiance? Right? The first two are gonna be the same on all three of these lists because these are foundation to your journey as a devoted follower of Christ. You gotta find a good church with spiritually healthy leaders. Right? You've got to build strong relationships with mature Christians. Both of those first two are interconnected with each other. Because when you find a good church with spiritually healthy leaders, and you begin, I loved what, come on, what Tammy, if you know Tammy, I hope you're texting her, giving her a call. She did an amazing job right, doing that promotion for a life group. So powerful. And I just I appreciated her vulnerability about talking about how she had really tall walls, but she was still willing to go and, and, and let people in over time. You and I, no matter how tall our walls are, we need to let people in over time. And one of the reasons we need to let people in is that when we're standing in defiance. We need people that love us enough and people that we trust who can challenge us and pull us aside and to help us see the blind spot that we have. You've got to have an, a heart and an attitude of being open. You've got to be open to the fact that you're not always going to be right. Let's just pause there. Right? Tara, I think she's raising both hands in the back. Come on. I don't know about you, but I don't like to be wrong. Anybody else in here like to be wrong? Don't like to be wrong? I don't like to be wrong. I know. I'm not going to mention Hannah's name, but when I was doing the thing for fasting, I turned around and said, and when we fast, we're going to do it the happy way, right? Because of Pastor David, who is her husband, and, and, she, and I would never mention Hannah's name and tell the story. And she said, I'm not going to fast the happy way. I'm going to be obedient in the fast, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And I said, well, now we know where Selah gets it from, right? We've just figured it out. Now we know. Now we know right? There's, all of us have things, and we, we, most of us don't like to be wrong, but we're wrong a lot. Can I just tell you one of the scariest ways to live our life is that you don't have people that love you enough to help you see where you're wrong, right? And you know who you are because you love helping other people figure out when they're wrong, right? 
Should we just have everybody bow their heads and close their eyes and just do an altar call right now? Because I'm all about helping other people figure out when they're wrong, right? I'm all about it. Love it. Enjoy it. It's one of my spiritual gifts. I'm convinced of it. But when, but when it's our turn, we, we, don't, we don't like that, right? There's a difference between certainty and overconfidence. Certainty is the, is the emotional gift that faith and fact give us. Overconfidence is when my humanity takes over and now all of a sudden it's about my pride and about my ego. Certainty has a vulnerability, and the vulnerability is my humanity. And one of my protections against my humanity when it comes to the vulnerability of certainty are people that love me. Trust a team of people. Everything at this church is led by teams of people. I'm the lead pastor of this church. I don't do what I want here. I don't do what I want. I would never want to lead a church that way because I recognize I have my own vulnerabilities. Every decision that's made in this church passes through teams of people, teams of people that we trust, who, who God's called to, to lead. Individuals can be wrong. Teams of people can be wrong too, but I'm just telling you, not very often. If you're in a room full of people that you love and respect and trust and you've laid your case out like Tom Cruise, right? You can't handle the truth and you're convinced you're gonna win and every one of your friends in that room all looks at you and says the same thing to you, I'm just telling you, trust the team of people. Trust the room of people. One person could be wrong. A room of people are seldom wrong. If that room of people are mature Followers of Christ. You tracking with me? Not, I'm not talking about any team. I'm talking about a team of people that you look to. And, and they're people that you can say, I want to follow them as they follow Christ. If you're talking with one of them and you can't find an agreement, we, we get that. That happens to all of us. And so that, that's, why, that's why Matthew uh, uh, 18 is given to us about how you continue to add people into the conversation. Matthew 18 is not a strategy for you to bully other people into getting your way. Matthew 18 is about bringing more people into the room because usually more more people adds to the wisdom of the space. If, if you're looking at a group of people that you know and love and trust, I'm just saying to you, you might be the one that has a defiance problem and it's not really about certainty at all. Peter in confusion. This is our last one. John 18, 15 to 18. Jesus has been arrested. Now even the 12 have scattered. Verse 15 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus as did another of the disciples. We believe this to be John who's writing this gospel. That other disciple was acquainted with the high priest and so he was allowed to enter the high priest's courtyard with Jesus and Peter had to stay outside of the gate. Then the disciple who knew the high priest spoke to the woman watching the gate and she let Peter in. And the woman asked Peter, you're not one of that man's disciples, are you? No. He said, I am not. 
Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards made a charcoal fire and they stood around it warming themselves and Peter stood with them warming himself, right? So we know that Jesus has told Peter, you're gonna deny me three times. And Peter is saying, I would never deny you, right? Because now we see Peter's moving in overconfidence again and not in certainty. And so now he's vulnerable to his humanity. So this is the first denial. John 18, jumping down to verse 25. Meanwhile, as Simon Peter was standing by the fire warming himself, they asked him again, you're not one of his disciples? He denied it again, saying, no, I am not. Verse 26, but one of the household slaves of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, right? said, didn't I see you out there in the olive grove with Jesus? And again, Peter denied, and immediately the rooster crowed. And Jesus said, right before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Third denial. One of Jesus' closest friends. I've always read this text as thinking that Peter was afraid. Or maybe at times... Other times I've read it, I thought, well, maybe he's struggling with a moment of cowardice, but in studying it this week, I think I'm drawing a completely different conclusion. I don't think Peter was either of those. I think Peter was just confused. I really just think he was confused. I think he was confused because Peter had some success with certainty, but he also had some experience with overconfidence and defiance. And I really think that even though all the facts had been given to them about what was going to happen, they didn't believe any of that because they just couldn't fathom that Jesus wasn't going to usher in a political kingdom. They really thought he was going to restore the kingdom of David. Convinced. And now Peter finds himself, and I just I think he's confused. I think he doesn't know whether or not he's supposed to be certain based on what Jesus had said, or whether he's supposed to be uncertain about the situation and move in faith. And I think in that moment, he was just trapped in this place of confusion. I really do. And because of that confusion, Peter finds himself pulling back from his devotion to Christ. Confusion can bring great crisis to your life and my life. As we journey through this life, there's going to be times where we're certain about all the right things and there's nothing that can happen to displace that certainty from our hearts. There's going to be times in our lives, like it is with Peter, where the situation has become so different than anything that we expected. It begins to threaten every bit of certainty our heart has accumulated throughout life. There's going to be times where we're just, we're wrong. We're, we're, we, we thought we were certain, but we couldn't have been more wrong. And we had loving friends that helped to, to correct us. But, but that leaves us doubting ourselves, doesn't it? Because we think if I'm wrong about this, I could be wrong about other things. And this is the place. Peter's trapped in this place. It's a hard place to be. You and I are going to find ourselves at times in this life where we're facing confusion. We're not sure whether we're supposed to be certain. We're not whether, sure whether we're supposed to be uncertain. And we're not sure whether or not we're the one that's defiant. Look at this list. Find a good church. It's a recurring theme. You're tracking with me? I love what Tammy said in, in, in her phrase, that, that she was living her life as a spiritual orphan. What does that mean? It means that she had made a vow of devotion to Christ. Heaven was promised to her, but she was completely disconnected from the family of God. Jesus just didn't die to reconcile us to God. He died to reconcile us to each other. That's why the message of this church is heaven now, heaven forever. The second heaven being capitalized. 
that when you make a vow of devotion to Christ, heaven is promised to you, but he wants you to have a measure of heaven now, and you will not have that measure by yourself. Strong relationships with mature Christians. Watch this. If you're struggling in a place of confusion, this is what I would say to you. You gotta find the last time that you were certain with God and you gotta start there. Peter finds himself in a fishing boat on the shores of Galilee and many people teach that text that he was just going back to what was familiar, but that's not true. In one of Jesus' post-resurrection encounters, he, he told the disciples, you go to Galilee, you wait for me there, I'm gonna come and give you instruction. So they were doing what Jesus had told them to do. I love this part of the story. Peter was so stinking confused, he didn't know which way was up, right? But what he knew is that Jesus had told him to go somewhere, and he was certain about that. And when you're in a place of confusion, the gift that you give yourself is to remember a time in your life where you were completely certain about something that God had said to you, and you gotta get back to that place. Now, for many of you, that's just getting to that back, back to that place emotionally, which means that, that, that you can look back into that time in your life and begin to compare your life now to what your life was like then and begin to say what was missing, right? And what are maybe some things in my life that I've added that I need to get rid of? And you begin to do the work of getting your life back in shape spiritually so you can be certain again. For some of you, it literally means you've got to do like what Peter did. I'm not kidding. For some of you, you're pursuing a career that you know God didn't want you to pursue, but you're doing it out of your own selfish ambition. And what I would say to you, the longer you stay on that road, the more complicated it's gonna get when God undoes it for you. For some of you, you might be in a romantic relationship that you know that you're not supposed to be in and that's created the confusion that you're experiencing. You gotta go back to the place where you felt certainty, which was not with that person. If you're married, as soon as you said, I do, that marriage became God's will for your life. So don't leave here saying tonight, Pastor Fred said, right? No, no, no. You stand here, now that's his will for your life. And then as a married couple, you gotta go on this journey of figuring out how can you get back to a place of certainty. So powerful here as we look into this text. And when Jesus finds Peter, right, because this is what he did, Jesus gives him the gift of certainty, by asking him the same question three times. Now, there's a lot of fun, nuanced language that's powerful, and that's another sermon for another time, but let's not let the complexity of that story overshadow the simplicity of that story. That Jesus asks him, do you love me? And he asks him three separate times. Why does he do that? Because he wants to restore the sense of certainty in Peter's heart. He's saying to Peter, I, I understand. This is a complicated time. You're confused. Let's talk about something that you know for sure. Do you love me? And by the end of that conversation, certainty was restored to Peter's heart even though he was living in an uncertain time. Jesus will do the same thing for you. He will restore certainty to your heart. Because like Peter, you have a purpose. Like Peter, you have a destiny. Like Peter, there's stuff that God wants you to do in 2018. Peter was supposed to deliver the first sermon 
for the very right first church service in the book of Acts. He was supposed to become one of the leaders of a, a new religion that was going to be called Christianity. There was a lot that Peter had waiting for him, and Jesus knew that he would never step in to his destiny until certainty was restored to his heart, and Jesus wants to restore that sense of certainty to you. I can invite the worship team to come back up. This whole series started several weeks ago when I was just reading these verses out of Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. 13 to 17 says this, Therefore put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And then after the battle, you will be standing firm. Stand your ground putting on, here it comes the list, the belt of truth, the body of armor of God's righteousness, for shoes put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, listen to what it says, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil, put on the helmet of salvation and take the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Out of this entire list, some of the things Paul clarifies as to what they are. Like the sword of the spirit, he explains the imagery, which is the word of God. But have you ever noticed here in these verses, because I had never seen it before, that the shield of faith is the only one that's described in function. It's the only one that Paul describes as, and this is exactly what it does. The others we're told what they are by name. Maybe we're given some explanation of the prophetic imagery, but we're not told what they accomplish specifically, but not the shield of faith. Listen to what he says. He says, to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. From the beginning of time, the devil tries to use the fire of doubt, the fire of doubt to consume our lives. The devil is always copying what God is trying to do. Have you ever noticed that, that when the church was born, it was fire that rested upon those early believers? That fire represents lots of things. We know it certainly represents the Holy Spirit, but one of the things that fire represents, it represents certainty. It represents a passion that God ignited in their lives. And the devil is always trying to, to overcome the fire of faith and the fire of certainty with the fire of doubt. And that's why the shield of faith, come on, that's why the shield of faith is what we have to have to quench those fiery darts to protect the certainty of our hearts. Stand with me. Father, as we step into this moment of worship, I pray for every person that's here. Whether they're in a place, God, where, where they're stuck in the uncertain and, and they need to just walk away from that list and just begin to remind them themselves of the things that they are certain about. Father, I pray for the person that's here right now, God, and they're, and they're that person that's stuck in a place of defiance. They've been saying to everyone else, you're wrong and I'm right. I pray tonight for a breakthrough in their heart, for a softening, God. And for the person that's here, they're just confused. Uncertain, certain, defiant. They just, they feel like they're, they're caught in the surf, just tumbling around in their spiritual life. Father, I pray that they would have such a sense, even now as we sing this song, Jesus, of your presence in this room. 
and that you would bring them back to a place of certainty. And maybe they came here tonight empty-handed, but they would leave here tonight with a shield of faith. A shield of faith. And begin to quench the fires of doubt. And then you would begin to rekindle the fire of faith and certainty in their heart so they can step into 2018 ready to be the person you've called them to be and to do the things that you've created them to do. Let's worship together.